Hey everyone, this is James Wilson with MTB Strength Training Systems and BikeJames.com. And today we're going to cover some fun subjects on the Bike James podcast. We're going to take a look at dumbbells and why they're such a great training tool for mountain bikers. We're going to take a look at a study that was looking at the correlation between breathing pattern disorders and uh, functional movement. So very important for us as riders because we're you know worried about how we move both on and off the bike. But how you move is behind your technical skills. You know helps you uh, be more efficient. So you know functional movement is one of those things that if you're listening to this podcast, odds are you're interested in and understanding how you're breathing can affect your functional movement is really important because you may be holding yourself back and not even realize it. And finally, we're going to take a look at a question that I got about handlebar width and can your handlebars be too narrow? I've you know got some posts out there on my blog talking about how most people's handlebars are too wide. And so I got a question from someone about, you know, well, what, what do you think is too narrow as far as handlebars go? So, but before we do that, we get into that, I do want to uh, remind you that if you are a 40 plus year old rider, uh, that I have a training program for you at bikejames.com, the 40 plus MTB rider training program. It combines isometrics, combines breath work, and combines uh, CO2 tolerance training into a unique workout. Again, this isn't just like, you know, functional training for the 40 plus year old rider or something like that. Like this is a unique workout that you're not going to find anywhere else because it combines elements that no one else is really using and combining yet uh, to create a workout program for the 40 plus year old rider uh, that will help them improve and main, you know, maintain and even improve their performance uh, on the bike while setting them up for years to come, right? The idea is how do I do this for uh, as long as I want? And so how do I you know, ride for a lifetime? And once that becomes more of a concern of yours, then there's some things you want to do a little bit differently with your workouts. And so that's what this workout's about. So again, check it out at bikejames.com, the 40 plus year old MTB rider training program. And uh, yeah, money back guarantee. So if it doesn't work for you, I'll even refund your money. So on to the podcast. So the first subject that I was going to talk about today is dumbbells, and I titled this one In Defense of Dumbbells, and it may be a little overblown, and you know, maybe my perspective of the situation is different than other people's, but it seems that over the last several years, um, you know, five plus years, that kettlebells have taken on a very prominent role in training for uh, for mountain biking, for you know sporting stuff, and the dumbbells have become almost like a like well you know a, a second rate piece of training equipment <laughs> that like if you had to choose between kettlebells and dumbbells that you would choose kettlebells because they're quote unquote more functional and that dumbbells are fine but you know they're not your your best option and so but. I and I, I say this because one, I've been doing this for a long time, right? Like I started uh, working out in seventh or eighth grade when I was, you know, what the hell age is that? You know, around twelve, thirteen years old. And it, you know, at the at the time when I started working out, dumbbells were a critical part of your training program. Like right? you had barbells for moving weight, and then you had dumbbells for you know maintaining symmetry and working single arm and single limb stuff. And so, but they were 
uh, considered a, a vital part of a training program. Uh, but again, this is in the uh, the early 90s, and so no one people aren't is, is into kettlebells. I mean, most people hadn't heard of them. Again, like there's this, yes, kettlebells were around. They got forgotten about. There's been like a, a, a resurgence, I guess, in the interest in kettlebells more than them being this uh, brand new thing. But there was a period where the vast majority of people had no idea what they were. And then in the early 2000s, the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, you had some marketing forces get behind the kettlebell and just, I think, you know, right place, right time, right message, uh, really helped to create an almost mythical status for the kettlebell. And I remember initially being kind of turned off by this marketing because it made it sound like just being in the same room as a kettlebell was going to make you stronger and more manlier and tougher and all these things, and that just touching one was going to, you know, bestow uh, these these you know crazy results that just nothing else could match. And I just remember thinking, like, man, this is a little overblown. But eventually, I, I you know got a kettlebell. I started working with it, and I I liked it. I really liked it, and so I started using kettlebells almost exclusively myself. In fact, you know, if you've been following me for a while you know that there was a period where I was Mr. Kettlebell and was all about, here's how you use kettlebells for, for mountain bike training. And over the last uh, you know year or two, I've started using dumbbells more and I realized that, man, I really kind of screwed up. That I, I threw the baby out with the bathwater. That there's not, there, there are things that dumbbells do that I feel actually uh, are they do better than kettlebells do. So, you know, not everything is like better with a kettlebell and there's some things that you can do with a dumbbell that are, are, are more difficult to do with a kettlebell. And so I, I feel that if you're a rider and you don't have access to kettlebells and all you have is dumbbells, you shouldn't feel like you're at some sort of disadvantage for sure. And if you don't have access to dumbbells, I would argue that you would find getting some dumbbells or getting access to some dumbbells and, and adding some uh, exercises with them that, you know, one specifically that I'll touch on here in a second, that you'll actually get better results, that you're going to find uh, your, your you know, specific movement and stuff for riding is going to be improved uh, through using dumbbells in, in addition to using kettlebells. So the there's a few things that I think, like I said, dumbbells – do better kettlebells are still a valuable training tool but uh so the the three things that i wanted to touch on for you know to just get you thinking about with your dumbbells is first the dumbbell cheat curl and i've done again some videos and posts on this on my blog so you can uh, go and search there for for db cheat curl and you'll find some more information and, and see a video on what this is but basically what this is is a narrow stance swing. So you're holding the dumbbells at your side. You do a, a hinging motion where you're pushing your butt back, like there's a button on the wall behind you that you're trying to press with your butt, and your butt is going back, and your chest is coming down towards the floor, and you are letting the the, the dumbbell swing back. So it's almost like your your biceps are staying in line with your ribs as you do it. And then you you come up, and you use the momentum to, you know, for lack of a better word, curl 
the dumbbells up into a, a shoulder press type position that's you know in front of your shoulders. And so it's like the top of a, of a, a hammer curl, um, if you're familiar with that exercise. And so the dumbbell cheat curl is called that because it looks like you're, it's a cheat curl. You're using your hips to curl the, the, uh, the, the dumbbells up. And one, I, you know, a lot of people, myself included, don't like cheating. And so, you know, a dumbbell cheat curl doesn't sound like an exercise that's going to have a lot of value. But when you really break it down and you look at what it is, you realize like, holy crap, this is actually the best MTB specific explosive hip hinge exercise that we can do. And the main reason for that is because of your, your feet that with dumbbells, you're able to have a narrow stance. So your feet are narrower, they're hip width apart and your hands, excuse me, are on the outside of your, your legs. So you have a narrow stance with your hands outside of your legs. Now, if you look at a kettlebell swing, you see the opposite of this. You see a wide stance with your feet and your hands are inside of your legs. And this is not how we are when we're on our bike. When we are riding our bike, we have a narrow stance with our hands outside of our legs. They're wider than our legs. And, and so that position is more specific to what we're doing on the bike. And so the, the hip hinge that you're using with the dumbbell cheat curl, again, is going to be more specific. Now, you can also take it a step further and make it even more specific by going into a stagger stance where you're basically doing a single leg uh, dumbbell cheat curl with a kickstand. You've got one leg slightly stepped back. You're balanced on your toe. So it's acting like a kickstand that you're barely putting weight on. It's just there for balance. And you're trying to do the movement with your, your lead leg, the leg that still has the foot in, in contact with the ground underneath you. And so, like I said, I, I think of it as like a single leg cheat curl with a kickstand. And you can also drop the back foot and get yourself into a pedal position. So get your feet set. In fact, on my, in, you know, my old gym, I used to have marked out on the floor where pedals would be like, you know, your pedals and your cranks and all that. And so, you know, so people could stand on them and have their feet in the same general position as what you would have on your bike when you're, you're standing up on your bike. And so, but if you've been riding for any amount of time, you can probably naturally find that position pretty easily. Uh, and so, but again, having that pedal stance and doing the dumbbell cheat curl, is going to make it even more specific and you can do it with either leg forward so you start to work on asymmetries a lot of people have trouble riding with their their weak leg their their non-dominant leg forward uh that's that's a, a weakness that i think should be fixed that you should be able to ride up to like 80 percent of your your regular skill level with either foot forward and it, and so doing exercises like that will help you start to iron that out. Um, but again, you can't do that with a dumbbell. It's very difficult to get yourself in a narrow stance with your hands outside of your legs. And again, I understand it can be done. I've seen people do it, but I've done it myself. I've also whacked my knee by mistiming and, and just not focusing. It's not as easy as it is with dumbbells. Dumbbells are safer and they're much easier to do it with than, uh, than kettlebells are. And so, but that dumbbell cheat curl... Like I said, I, I believe that that is the single best 
explosive hip hinge movement that you can do as a mountain biker and it is best done with dumbbells and so having access to dumbbells and using them for this exercise is uh is is something that i would highly recommend um over and above what you'd be able to do with them with other things as well uh another advantage to dumbbells over kettlebells and this is more of a matter of like design with them is that dumbbells tend to come in five pound increments and kettlebells by their design come in uh four to eight kilogram increments which is 8.8 to 17.6 pounds and that is a a large jump especially when you're looking at it from a percentage standpoint so if you're going from a 16 kilogram kettlebell to a 20 kilogram kettlebell this is a jump of 35.2 to 44 pounds that's a 26 percent increase in weight but if you go from a 35 pound dumbbell to a 40 pound dumbbell that five pounds represents a 14 percent increase in weight which is way more manageable for you as especially for upper body exercises and also especially for females you know i've been working out with my my daughter and it is way easier for her to make progress with her upper body exercises using dumbbells and the five pound jumps that they have versus the kettlebells and the you know four kilogram jumps because I, I i have a you know not everybody has a set of you know four kilogram jumps traditionally it goes from 16 to 24 kilos which is a a huge um you know increase in weight especially from a percentage uh increase and so uh i i find those five pound increments more manageable and and uh actually help people improve their strength and keep progress going better than uh than what i was seeing with uh with, with kettlebells and their larger increases and lastly this is also kind of ties into some of the upper body exercises and this is totally a, a personal uh preference of mine that i have currently but uh dumbbells don't smash into your wrists and forearms and they're more comfortable to train with and again i know some hardcore kettlebell people are just going to roll their eyes at me saying this and trust me i used to be one of them okay so i understand i mean i've i've literally trained hundreds of people using kettlebells and i would tell them you just need to get used to it it's part of the process of learning to lift them properly and that's not necessarily untrue right and and when i got past the initial discomfort and i got to you know when i'd been using kettlebells for a while it wasn't so bad for me and you know i I remember being reluctant even to allow people to wear a wristband or something around their wrist to just kind of take some of the edge off of having the kettlebell uh you know resting and, and smashing into your forearm and wrist and and you know especially early on people learning how to do it without turning their wrists so they're not like grinding the bone they got to keep it nice and steady like i understand there's a method to how to minimize that discomfort but the the fact still remains that you've got this you know this ball of weight just pressing into your your wrist and forearm and after taking a break from doing uh you know a lot of heavy upper body stuff and and focusing on isometrics over the last few years i started getting back into lifting heavy uh, heavier, I should say, uh, with my daughter, 
And so I, I found that me pressing kettlebells overhead, just, it didn't, it hurt. And it, I didn't like the way that it felt. I could feel my body like reacting, trying to protect itself from this uncomfortable pressure and weight. And so, but grabbing a dumbbell, you don't get that. And it's, uh, so anyways, just, I, I believe that that comfort, um, that the dumbbells have, like they're just better for pressing the, with, uh, your, you know, for upper body exercises and, you know, with the dumbbell cheat curl. So I don't really use kettlebells very much anymore. I don't do a whole lot of kettlebell swings because I focus more on, on dumbbell cheat curls and in the Indian club. Um, uh, swing, which is the same basic movement, but with uh, heavy Indian clubs, and and then I use dumbbells for my upper body movements for the most part. And so I, you know, I use kettlebells for lower body exercises, for goblet squats. You know, so there's definitely some things that I, I use it for, use them for. But um, you know, except just me personally, I find that using the right tool for the job. I guess that was another thing that I've kind of learned through uh, being introduced to the steel mace and, and heavy Indian clubs is that there's tools for the, that work well for jobs and we should use those tools for the jobs. So leverage based training is best trained with, uh, you know, maces and, and heavy Indian clubs. And this creates stability in the body instead of having to stand on, you know, unstable surfaces, trying to recreate that, but you know, it's kind of a, a side thing, neither here nor there, but my, um, you know, my, my point is that you want to use the right tool for the right job. And so dumbbells serve very well for specific jobs. And I think that using them for that, you know, specifically the dumbbell cheat curl for training our explosive hip hinge on the bike, and then also using them for upper body exercises, uh, you know, just because I, I feel like they are a, uh, a better way to, to do my pressing. Um, and I know some people are going to Say, well, what about the offset load? You know, isn't it more functional? And the reality is, is that the um, the kettlebell's load is not offset very much at all. And yes, it's more than a dumbbell. But if you really want to work an offset load, then use a tool that's made to do that, which would be a heavy Indian club or a steel mace. And so, if I'm really trying to get that leverage-based strength that I'm supposed to get from an offset load then the kettlebell is not really doing a great job of it, okay? It, it's still mainly a compression-based training tool uh, as opposed to a leverage-based training tool. Yes, it's further down the leverage continuum, or further down the continuum towards the leverage-based side than, than a dumbbell is, but not enough for it to really like offset the need for a true leverage-based training tool. And, um, you know, again, it's not it doesn't make it better enough for upper body exercises and, and some of these other things I'm talking about to outweigh what I think are, you know, the, the drawbacks to them. So anyways, the, I'm not saying to go smelt your kettlebells. Okay. Like I'm, I still have and use kettlebells and if all I had were kettlebells, trust me, I would still be able to make a great training program and, and, you know, improve uh, performance and, and help people get results with whatever you have, okay, like that's just as, as a as a good trainer, you you should be able to do that. You shouldn't be so married to any piece of training equipment that without it you're uh, just completely lost. But again, if if I am able to choose the right tools for the right job, then I'm going to use dumbbells, I'm going to use kettlebells, I'm going to use heavy Indian clubs and steel maces, 
and I'm going to apply them where they're best used. And so, again, especially that dumbbell cheat curl for us as riders, I think is something that dumbbells require a prominent place uh, in our um, training tools. So, uh, anyways, moving on to the bro science. And this one's probably actually, it's not, it's not really bro science because I'm not going to have to interpret this too much because it's a pretty uh, interesting study that looks specifically at things that concern us as riders, and that is functional movement. And so the study wanted to find if there's a relationship between breathing pattern disorders and, and functional movement or dysfunctional movement, I guess, is really what they're looking for the, the, the uh, connection there. And so they had a series of tests that they had participants go through that uh, looked at each one of these. And so the, the movement one, start out with that, was actually the functional movement screen. And so this is something that I've been talking about for you know years and years. Uh, it's, it's definitely had a big impact on how I look at uh, working with people. The functional movement screen is a seven uh, movement uh, screen, I guess, for lack of a better word. It's funny, people get all, you know, test versus screen and assessment, right? Like this is just, it's, it is a, an assessment that you do of movement to give you an initial look, like are there any dysfunctions here that we need to uh, keep an eye on so that we don't cause a future injury? So the functional movement screen has been shown in a few studies to have a strong correlation in being, or, or being predictive a future injury in people that aren't able to pass the the seven you know or pass the test right and so the functional movement screen is basically a good window into your basic functional movement and how well you're going to move how efficiently you're going to move how well you're going to be able to uh, execute your technical skills so everything that you do on your bike is you know comes from your functional movement and the functional movement screen is a good window into are you actually moving well or are you just overcoming some dysfunctions that over time are going to show up as injuries that are going to cause you to stop being able to progress and and stop uh, you know and having to take time off. And so the by taking people through the functional movement screen, they were able to get a, an idea of their functional movement. And then by taking them through a series of breathing assessments, they were able to look at uh, breathing pattern disorders and see, like, was there some sort of connection between, you know, the, the breathing pattern disorders and dysfunctional movement? And what they found, you know, no surprise is that there is. There's a strong correlation between uh, those two things. So the, the things that they were testing them on from the breathing side they were, you know, it's a multidimensional thing. So they were trying to look at it from a bunch of different angles. Um, one thing was they were looking at their CO2 production and clearance, both at rest and at work. And, you know, if this is higher than normal, then that usually indicates excessive production of or trouble clearing carbon dioxide. Um, there was a questionnaire, the Nijmegen, I'm probably slaughtering that word, but I have it in the show notes, and so if you want to check that out. But it's a 16-question test that is a very popular way, apparently, among uh, researchers to identify uh, breathing pattern disorders. And it's also been used specifically to help identify anxiety-related uh, breathing disorders. 
they also looked at um, resting, breathing, breath rate, and they also looked at their uh, working breath rate as well. But with the resting breath rate, they were looking at anything over 16 breaths per minute as a fail. Is that indicating dysfunctional breathing? And I'd say that was actually being pretty generous because uh, I've you know seen anything as as low as uh, 10. Um, some people say like anything over like six to eight. So optimally, you're looking at like six to eight breaths per minute. Um, so 16 breaths per minute is is actually even that's a little high from some people's measurements. But to fail that means you're definitely over breathing. Um, and then they also did a a uh, what's known as the high low assessment. And this is where you place one hand on your chest and then one hand on your belly, just a little bit above your belly button. And then you just observe when you breathe, you know, where's the movement coming from? And, you know, are you getting a lot of movement from the, the chest moving up and down? Or is the chest staying still and you're getting more movement from the belly expanding and, and you know, relaxing um, as you're breathing? And so, you know, this looks at your breathing mechanics and, you know, are you using your diaphragm or are you using your chest to breathe? And uh, they also looked at breath hold times. There's been some suggestions uh, in some of the research that a, a breath hold time of less than 20 seconds might also indicate uh, poor CO2 exchange. And so these were the, the breathing assessments that they took them through. And what they found, like I said, was a very strong correlation between breathing pattern disorders and low scores and failures on the functional movement screen. So to pass the functional movement screen, you need to get it's it's scored on a three point scale. Um, three is uh, you know the highest you can get. Uh, two is you know passing, but you need to make sure that it doesn't degrade because it might go back to you know a one, which is uh, a fail. You, you don't have adequate control of the movement pattern, and then you also have a zero, which is pain. And so if you score a zero or a one on anything, then you automatically fail the test, but you still take your overall score. And so to pass, you need a two or greater with no asymmetry. So you can't have twos on one side and three on another. That's another uh, you know, failure with the, with the movement screen. Um, but they looked at who scored at least 14 points total because you would need 14 points to pass the test. And there were 18 people that did that. And of those 18 people, 14 of them were diaphragmatic breathers. So six of them uh, were, uh, you know, had the 14 points, but they were chest breathers. And then to pass, though, like I said, out of the 18, only eight people actually passed, like met all the criteria to pass. And of the people that passed, all but one were diaphragmatic breathers. Only one of them was uh, had, had been considered a chest breather. So there were a couple of takeaways here. One, what was interesting to me is that out of all the tests that they did, the simple high-low test worked the best. It had the strongest correlation, and, and so you don't need anything fancy to test your breathing. I was looking at the numbers for all the other things that I mentioned, and I couldn't really tell any... You know, there were obviously some things like their their breath rate, um, you know, people that passed, their their breathing rate tended to be lower. Um, you know, so there there were definitely some um some differences between the two. 
but it seemed like that are you a diaphragmatic breather or are you a a chest breather had the strongest correlation between uh, pass or having dysfunctional movement and being a chest breather versus you know if if you were going to pass and this isn't to say that everyone who is a diaphragmatic breather passed the test it's just that the odds if you're going to pass the test it's going to be way harder for you to do if you're a chest breather than if you're a diaphragmatic breather and that, that that's going to make your ability to move efficiently um you know just stack the odds in your favor more and <clears throat> excuse me so you don't need any fancy tests to to measure this. You can do the high-low test and see, am I a chest breather or am, am I a diaphragmatic breather? And if you're a chest breather, then just know odds of you having movement dysfunctions are way higher. And so, and if you want to address those movement dysfunctions, this also suggests that you're going to need to address the that breathing dysfunction as well. So, you know, if you value functional movement, and move, you know how it can help you both on and off the bike, then you need to give breathing the attention it deserves, right? So again, one person did pass the FMS as a chest breather. So obviously you can do it, but again, the odds are just greatly stacked against you. And the other thing is, is beyond just functional movement, dysfunctional breathing has ramifications in so many other areas, right? Like your, your efficiency, which is going to affect your cardio, it's going to affect your your internal in, uh, chemistry, which can affect your you know just just all sorts of things, right? So, just even beyond the scope of the functional movement screen, better breathing is going to serve you in other areas as well. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons that I emphasize it uh, so much. In fact, the high low test is part of the breathing assessments in the forty plus MTB rider training program. And so, uh, but that's why I have that in there and I have the breath work and breathing stuff in that program because this stuff is foundational for you, especially as you get older and you need to make sure that you're, you're working as efficiently as possible, um, you know, on, you know, firing on all cylinders as best you can. So, uh, so right on. So that's it with the, with that study. Um, last thing I got here is a rider Q and a, and you know what is too narrow for handlebars right and so the i had sent out a couple i got a couple videos out there one is you know your handlebars are too wide a case study and you see where i get a we got a bike from for my wife from the bike shop and the bars are just way too wide and so i videoed the process that i went through i showed like why they're too wide why like it you know as you go through your range of motion, if your hands are too wide, it starts to force your shoulders up and forward. So you're getting them into a less stable position and it, it makes it harder for you to move through the full range of motion on your cockpit in an efficient, stable manner. So you may be able to like, you know, at the top, it doesn't feel like there's any problem, but as you move through the range of motion, you start to notice uh, some problems from your hands being too wide. And so we showed how we found what the right length for her was, and that was to have her do a, a push-up test and find where she felt that her range of motion and stability was greatest doing a push-up, and that that was going to correlate very closely to what she was going to need on the bike. And that's you know exactly what happened. We cut her handlebars down to, you know, it, it was below 700 centimeters. It was like 670 or something like that. 
uh, maybe even less than that. But it uh, it immediately improved her ability to lift the front end, to corner, uh, you know, stand up and pedal and keep her, you know, move through the the whole cockpit uh, and keeping her shoulders in a better position. So it, um, but anyway, so that video there uh, shows the push up test. And then I'd also sent another um, email out and I talked about another test that you can do where you're on your knees and you fall forward and you and you catch yourself on the you know hands to the ground and just lower yourself down to the bottom of the push up and you do that a few times and that's another way that you can test and see so if you have trouble doing a push up then that falling test can be another way to kind of get a rough idea of like where do my hands naturally go to give me the best range of motion for absorbing energy through this range of motion and so uh, the, the the person who was asking this had done the falling forward test and had found that around 610 centimeters was uh, where they were, were consistently going. And But they were asking, like, isn't that a little too narrow? Because that, that's, that's pretty narrow, uh, you know, considering a lot of people's handlebars are like 750 to 800 um, centimeters wide or, <clears throat> excuse me, millimeters wide. So... Sorry, if I get the centimeters and millimeters all mixed up, then I uh, I apologize. Then, um, but yeah, so centimeters—that's a freaking super wide bar. Um, so yes, so six hundred ten millimeters, and I, I, so he's asking—is that a little bit too narrow? And so my answer is probably right. So here's you got to look at. There's two things we're trying to weigh here. We're trying to weigh stability. And, and range of motion with uh, steering and how much input you need to get the bike to start leaning over. There, there's another video that I did where I showed how narrow handlebars actually make it easier to lean your bike over and that having handlebars too wide can make it hard to lean your bike and corner properly. And so, uh, but, you know, take that to an extreme as the handlebars get too narrow then it takes very little input to start to get the bike to start leaning over and moving. And so the bike can start to get twitchy, you know, again, for lack of a better term, uh, that's just the, the word that I use to describe it. But so you don't want your bike to be twitchy, right? But you want your hands in the most stable position possible. So for me, it was about 675 millimeters was the, uh, um, the, the width that I found worked for, for my handlebars. And I actually thought that was going to be too narrow. I'd cut them down to that point. Really like, okay, I'm going to do this and find out that this is too twitchy and I don't like it. And then I'm going to start ex- going wider from there. And I wrote it and I was like, man, this actually is good. I, I, I think that any narrower and it would start to get too twitchy for me. But uh, that was a good um, you know, good width for me. And so I think that, again, a lot of this depends on, and I should have followed up with this and asked like, well, how big are you, right? Like if you're, you know, uh, really small riding an extra small bike, then that might not be too wide, right? Like this is all relative to you and your bike. And so the, and again, this is why like doing something like a push-up test works better than any sort of like formula that someone can come up with for this because that takes you and all your your unique stuff into account having you move 
and you know measuring your shoulders and your arms and this and that and coming up with some formula that's going to tell you like oh this is the perfect handlebar width well like maybe but you don't know until you get put your hands on it you start moving with it so that's you know why that's really the ultimate test um anyways and so you know 610 millimeters may not be too wide for someone in some circumstances but in general that's going to be probably a little narrow and so um so anyways, I guess like my point is, is that as you are looking at how wide do I want my handlebars, just remember you're trying to balance these two things. And so going too narrow can make it too twitchy. But again, you don't know how too far it is until you've gone too far. And so, you know, until you put handlebars 610 millimeters wide on your bike and try it, you don't know. I'm, I haven't tried it, so I don't know, but I'm I'm guessing. This is what I'm, I'm guessing based on my experience. Um, but you know, if you, your local shop has a pair of handlebars, they'll sell to you super cheap used handlebars or something they got laying around and you can chop those bad boys down and just ride around the parking lot and see like no one's, you're not going to die hopefully, uh, riding around the parking lot, but you know, you should be able to get some sort of sense like, yeah, this is stupid or, well, this might be something I want to try on the trail. And then, you know, it, it, it go appropriately from there. Like, you know, don't go on the hardest trail you possibly have when you're experimenting with stuff like that. But, uh, you know, if you try it and you find out that, that 610 works, like, let me know. But like I said, I think that that's going to be a little too narrow for most people. I think that, you know, uh, somewhere in the 650 to 675 range for, for most people is going to be, um, you know, good, maybe, you know, a little wider again, you just kind of got to find what works for you. But I, I personally feel like that, you know, I'm, I'm like 5'11". So I think that if you're, you know, six foot or under, and unless you got like crazy arms or something like that, you probably don't need 700, 750 millimeter wide bars. You definitely don't need 800 plus. I don't know anyone who needs handlebars that wide, uh, really. And so, uh, but anyways, point is you probably could use to narrow your handlebars if you've never thought about it before and you're just using what came on the bike. Um, and again, like just to, that that a little side note on my wife's bike, we were doing a, a, a clinic here, just a local free clinic on um, you know manuals and, and picking up your front end. And there was a lady in the clinic who could not do it on her bike. And she had these massively wide bars. She was probably like, you know, five, five or something like that. And she had like 800 plus wide bars. And she'd been told that like, well, we've got bigger wheels so we need bigger handlebars to handle the leverage that the bigger wheels are creating. And, you know, that makes sense, but it's just, that's not how it actually works. That is like, you know, bro science right there. Uh, people saying stuff like that. And so she'd never thought about cutting her handlebars down and she could not lift the front end of her bike to save her life. And we said, well, try my wife's bike here. And so she jumps on my wife's bike that had the narrower bars because we cut them down for my wife, who's about five, four, somewhere in that, that same range. And immediately first try, boom, front wheel comes up. You know, she's not like setting any manual records, but like she literally could not get the front wheel to come off the ground. And immediately once she was on a bike with narrower handlebars, she was able to lift her front wheel. And so it just showed that like, man, your, your bars being too wide, man, it, it, it screws you up in so many different ways. And so it's, uh, you know, I, I, I'm glad to see that there's more people talking about this and there's more discussion about this and more people realizing that, 
having your bars, you know, 750 to 800 millimeters plus wide is ridiculous for the vast majority of people out there that this whole idea of wider being more stable, like nothing goes that way. Everything's on a bell curve, right? Like too narrow, no good, too wide, no good. There's a sweet spot. There's nothing out there that's like more is better. Okay. So like wider is not always better. There's going to be a point where it's too wide and, and well, where is that? And how do you determine that? What's your thought process with figuring that out? You know, and, and it should be, again, in my opinion, based around your ability to, to move and create your push-up motion because that's what you're, where most of the energy, most of the energy that you're dealing with on a bike is, is coming at you, you know, from forward, right? Like you have some lateral forces on you, but they're very minuscule compared to what's coming at you from head on. So that's where the forces that you're dealing with are. So you want to set yourself up to optimally deal with those forces and that's what you're going to find with your, your push-up motion. And so that's why that's a good, uh, that, that's a good test. So anyways, that sums that up. You know, point is just have some thought process behind how wide your bars are besides the freaking bro science that your local shop dude told you about wider bars and bigger wheels and all that nonsense. Um, and, and you'll be, uh, doing, doing good. So, that's going to do it for this uh, edition of the Bike James Podcast. Appreciate you guys uh, joining me for this one. I know it's been quite a while since I've been putting these out and just uh, you know had a bunch of stuff going on personally and professionally and stuff like that. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to get back on getting these out because I do enjoy them. They are good for me to uh, to, to share info and, and connect with, uh, you guys and in a way that I'm not necessarily able to do through the newsletter alone. So really enjoy doing these. Let me know if, uh, you know, you enjoy the podcast. Um, you know, uh, if you have any suggestions for future topics, I'm always looking for, you know, writer Q and a, uh, topic. So you got a good question for me, hit me up, you know, probably be on a, a future podcast episode. And, uh, again, you want to uh, support me and what I'm doing? The best ways to do that are to you know buy my training programs and to buy my pedals. So you know besides the the training programs that you'll find at BikeJames.com, I've um, got a bunch more besides the, uh, the the 40 plus MTB Rider program I was talking about earlier. That uh, you can also check out PedalingInnovations.com and the Catalyst Pedal, which is the pedal I invented that you know is based on actual science and movement principles and works with how your body was designed to move and uh, comes with a money-back guarantee so if it doesn't work for you I'll, I'll even refund your money so you got nothing to lose but uh, again check that out at, at pellinginnovations.com or check out my training programs at bikejames.com uh, appreciate the support and I will talk to everybody next time <laughs>